So good to see you here tonight. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to study His Word. And uh, if you would, just turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4. We're starting chapter 4 tonight. So if you would, read with me Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Eudeus and beseech Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement, Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, again, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all man, men, the Lord is at hand. And so we're going to look at this, the Lord is at hand, amen. He's at hand in a couple of ways. He's at hand and in, in, in he's very present with us now by his spirit. He says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So he, the Lord is at hand, even tonight, but the Lord is at hand in the light of his coming. His return is imminent. Not the second coming of the Lord, but what precedes that is the rapture of the church, which we looked at last week. That is imminent. That is a word that simply means it could happen at any moment. There's nothing else that has to happen before that. I say it all the time. There's a lot of things that have to happen before the second coming. There's a battle of Armageddon. There, the rapture has to happen first. There's, there's a lot of things, a seven-year tribulation, a lot of things that we can look at that have to happen before the Lord comes back to this earth to set up his, his millennial kingdom, which is be a literal thousand years on this earth. There's a lot of prophecies that have to be fulfilled, a lot of events on this earth and God's dealings and judgments with Israel and with the nations during that time. But nothing has to happen before the rapture of the church. Nothing. We have to live in light of that. And that's what he's saying here. So he says when he starts chapter 4 by saying therefore, he is referring to linking what he's about to say to what he just said. So I want you to look right at the last two verses of chapter 3. This is what we studied last week. I'm not going to go over that again. I just want you to see what the therefore is tying it into. Paul says in three, chapter 3, verse 20, For our conversation, that means our citizenship. Remember, the only time in the New Testament that that word is used in that, with that definition, our citizenship, our government, it says our culture, our society is in heaven. From whence also, from heaven, we also look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that is not the second coming, that's the rapture. We're looking for his coming in the clouds. We looked at the scriptures last week, amen? For who shall change, and when he comes, Christ the Lord shall change our vile, that means our bodies of low estate or low degree. They're bodies of humiliation. They're bodies that are... are are perishable and they're they're subject to sin and temptation and sickness and injury and old age. He's going to change those these vile bodies that we have that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working wherewith whereby he is able to even to subdue all things unto himself. And so that is the last that is the last part I would say of our salvation. We're saved. And, in one sense, we're as saved as we will ever be, but we have not realized fully all that this salvation entails. 
In other words, heaven is part of our salvation. We hadn't, haven't been there yet. We're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Part of our salvation, and we looked at this in Romans chapter 8, is, is the, uh, the, the new bodies that we're going to receive. The redemption, Paul says, of our bodies. That's what he's talking about here in Romans 8 and in Philippians chapter 3. That that's the last, almost like the last change that's going to take place. I, I believe that our nature will be conformed to his image perfectly at the rapture. And I believe our bodies are going to be fashioned like unto his glorious body. He is the first fruits of the resurrection. Other men had been raised by God from the dead. We've talked about it. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. There's some Old Testament people that were raised from the dead. So when the Lord's, when the word of God says in 1 Corinthians 15 that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, he's talking about the first fruits of, of the glorified body. Those that are going to be raised in, in newness of life. Those others like Lazarus, when they were raised to, from, the, from the dead and he came out of the, the tomb and they loosed him and let him go, he, he had a well body, but he had the same body that he had when he died. But now, when we're raptured, Christ was risen with, the, with this glorified body, and our body at the rapture will be fashioned like unto his glorious body. And that new body is not one that's vile or of low estate or low degree. It's a glorified body like his. Amen? And it's a body also that's fit for heaven. These are not. These are not fit for heaven. These bodies are not fit for eternity. We can pretty much tell that, right? They're breaking down and wearing down. But the bodies we're going to receive there will be. They will be eternal. And the Bible says it's sown in a natural body. It's raised in a spiritual body. So there literally is a spiritual body. It will be like Christ, okay? Whatever type of body he has now in his glorified state, uh, that's the type of body that we're going to have at the rapture. So in light of that, therefore, that all this is going to happen really soon and imminent. We're to live as though it is. Amen? Live as, as though it is. So we get to this chapter 4, and he talks about them. Remember our themes for this whole epistle. We started months and months ago, this study on Philippians. But the themes that, that God gives us in this would be joy, okay? And it would also be... Um, it would also be unity. So there's joy in all circumstances and situations, and we're going to talk about that a moment in just a moment, but also unity, unity of the body. He's, he's continually imploring the people, uh, the believers in Philippi, and that would be for us as well, stay in unity, okay, unity of the spirit. And so when he says, my beloved, it's a, it's, he, he calls, he's, remember, he's writing from a Roman prison. He, and he's called, he has a real heart for these Philippian believers. They, they stood by him. Some people, when Paul was arrested and thrown in prison, at different times he was thrown in prison, some people said, uh-uh, I'm, I'm staying away from that. That's just trouble. And they, they kind of abandoned Paul and left him. But the Philippian church did not. In the whole epistle, we started months ago, they sent uh, Epaphroditus. Aren't you glad you're not named Epaphroditus? But they sent Epaphroditus, who was one of the elders or leaders in the church. And he, he was a wonderful brother. And the Philippian believers heard Paul was in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. Most Bible scholars say that he, 
this was not his last stay or final stay in prison, okay? In other words, he's in prison in Rome at the time of writing this epistle. He, most believe, Bible scholars say he was released and he was arrested a second time where it would be his final time and he would be beheaded and martyred for the Lord. So at this time, he didn't know what the outcome would be. He was waiting, either, either waiting his trial or he was waiting the, the sentencing that would come from the trial. So we know more because we're looking back historically. At this time, Paul didn't know. He just knew he was going to keep serving God and trust in the Lord. So the Philippians, they want to minister to Paul. Paul had brought the gospel to them. He was their father in the faith. This wonderful church was started, not perfect, but a wonderful church. And they said, well, we're going to send our best man, basically, Epaphroditus, with, with some encouraging words to Paul. I think they brought a financial blessing to him. And so Epaphroditus makes this long journey, and he ministers to Paul in prison. He's able, Paul is able to have visitors come in and out. And this man, who was a believer, was able to encourage him, build him up bring some type of gift from them, bring words of encouragement from them. He got very sick on the way there. He spent some, a long time there before he fully recovered. He was nigh unto death, it says in this epistle. And then Paul says, I'm sending him back to you with this letter that we're reading. Okay? That's the whole story. But he loved these people. He loved, he, he calls them my dearly beloved. It's the same word that God the Father uses of Jesus at, when he's baptized in the Jordan River, right? And the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove and this voice from heaven where the Father says, this is my beloved Son, beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. And this is how Paul is looking at these believers and longing for them. He longed to be with them. He wasn't just buttering them up. He really wanted to be with them. He had a longing to be with the different churches and the different people individual people that he knew in the faith and in the Lord. And so he calls them in verse 1, my joy and crown. And just quickly, we won't spend a lot of time on this, but when the joy of any minister, okay, the joy of any pastor, uh, which is really like a shepherd over, over people that just in the faith, the joy of any minister is to see that his people his converts of his church, his members are, are doing well, doing well in the faith. It is the joy of any minister to know that those that, are, that he has led to the Lord or ministered to their lives are, are fully surrendered to Christ and doing well. That is, and I'll just read this from 3 John. So John says this, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. These aren't just little warm, fuzzy phrases. He's saying it's with all my heart. John says it. Paul says it here. No greater joy than to know my children. He's not just talking about his, his natural-born children. He's talking about children in the faith, okay, in Christ. And so he says, you're my joy and my crown. They were currently a joy. One day they would, they would be a crown. There is a crown for winning souls. If you've won somebody the, to the Lord, uh, there is a crown for that. There is a reward from God Almighty, from Christ to you, that you will receive. That will be the type of thing that we read about in Revelation where we cast those crowns back upon the Lord in worship. And I think, personally, I think it's a perpetual scene that, that goes on. I don't know, understand it all perfectly. 
but there is a soul-winning crown. A crown, in, a, in just in a natural sense, is a diadem, but a crown in this sense would be anything that one places honor or value on. And the Bible says, he that wins souls is wise. The Bible says in Psalm 126, he that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed. We're going to say, this for our sakes, this is the gospel, okay? Shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. If you go out soul winning, we're going next month. What's the day we're going? First Friday in June. The whole church is invited, and we're going to go back into that neighborhood. We call it the Foxy's neighborhood off of Airline and the service road off of Corsi back there, and kind of behind Home Depot a little bit. And we're going to bring the gospel. We got no other agenda but go out to share the gospel. Not trying to make church members. If they want to come, we invite them. We welcome them to come. We're not trying to build our church. We're trying to build his church. If they want to come here, hallelujah. They're more than welcome. All right? But anyway, there's crowns for that. There's crowns for souls that we win to the Lord. And God is the, is the one who, who saves a soul. But we have, we're his instrument in, in his hand. We are the means by which he chooses. He has chosen through the foolishness, as he puts it, of preaching to save them that are lost. So we preach the gospel. And so Paul says, you're my joy and my crown. Amen. And his, his, what he's beseeching them for, his admonition for them is the end of verse 1. So stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. This is why we meet every week. This is why we meet multiple times a week. This is why we come back for prayer meetings. Because we, we want to be strong in the Lord. We want to stand fast in the Lord. It's not enough just to be saved and then, and then just sort of be swept away in the current of the world. And say, well, I'm going to heaven one day when I die. But until then, I'm just loose and free-falling and floating through life. Being swept around by every care, every temptation. No, God has called us to be a holy people. Peculiar, set apart unto him. He, he's given us strength, and he wants us to stand in that strength. You stand there. You know, believers are, are likened to trees, the planting of the Lord, planted in the house of God. And we receive our nourishment. We're planted by the rivers of water, and we receive our strength from the Lord, and we bear fruit unto God. We're not just a piece of chaff that's blown away in the wind. Amen? We have the strength of the Lord. We might be very frail and weak physically. We might feel outnumbered, and we are in a, in a natural sense. But greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Satan does not want the people of God to stand fast in the Lord. I know it's a very simple thing, but he's our adversary. He's our enemy. If you're converted, you're born again, uh, well, what does he you say? Well, he'll just leave me alone now. He's not going to leave you alone. He wants to wreck your testimony. He wants to rob your joy. He wants to rob your peace from day to day. He wants to rob your effectiveness for Christ. He wants to wreck your service to the Lord. Uh, in your ministry to the body and outside of the body. He wants to take your Christianity and make it almost uh, anemic, okay, and to where it's just, yeah, you're saved, but you're, you're basically on life support, okay? God doesn't, doesn't intend for us to be on life support. We're more than conquerors through him that loved us. We're more than conquerors, and he wants us to live that way. This is what he's beseeching them, stand fast. And our steadfastness, it's very important to see at the end of that verse, is in the Lord. It's not just standing strong. I can take anything that comes my way. It's getting our strength from the Lord. It's standing fast in the Lord. 
That's what all of John chapter 15 is about. Abide in me and my word abides in you. He goes, as the branch cannot bear fruit except it abide in me, neither can ye accept you abide in me. The branch cannot accept it abides in the vine, neither can you accept you abide in me. And so our steadfastness is in the Lord. I just want to read this from Colossians 2, 7. Paul talks to the believers. These, these epistles, by the way, are, are very, very similar. It's, it's all, it's, they're almost mirror one another, Colossians and Philippians. So it, it's just interesting. But he says in Colossians 2, 7, rooted and built up in him. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught abounding therein with thanksgiving and so it's a steadfastness and that's what we're called to this is why we we gather this is why we admonish one another this is why we pray for each other this is why we'll come again daily and seek the lord and and come again sunday and sit under the word of god because we're being strengthened and rooted and built up amen it's not just every now and then but you can only save once but you were strengthened and built up every day Every single moment, we're to abide in Christ. Amen? And so, his word says, uh, at the end of chapter 15 of, of 1 Corinthians, which we've talked about, he says, Therefore, uh, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, inasmuch as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Be steadfast and unmovable. Amen? Satan wants us to go AWOL. He wants to undermine our service to the Lord, our fellowship with God, and, and we're to, to stand fast. And so it looks like in verse 2 that there was a problem. I don't know how it's a big problem or small problem, but he says, I beseech Judas and Syntyche that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, y'all, we know nothing else about these people. There's not other scriptures that talk about these same people. Uh, but the names, Udius means prosperous journey, and Sintic means pleasant acquaintance. I don't know if that has anything to do with anything, but the point is that we don't know anything else about them, but they are, they are feminine names. They're names for females, okay? So it's believed these were two women in the church, and the devil had planted some seed of discontent or discord, disunity, between these two because Paul heard about it. Probably Epaphroditus told him about it. I don't know how else he would know. And he's saying, look, I beseech these two. Beseech is like the strongest word for imploring someone. It's not begging. It's like, almost like a, an urging with all my heart, okay? I beseech these two women that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Same mind in the Lord. Nothing... Uh, Satan would love nothing more within a group of true believers. He wants to keep lost people lost. But among saved people, one of the things he wants to do is bring division and disunity. He wants to divide. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Okay? So he wants to bring division. There's no question that both of these women were Christians. They were true believers. When they died, they were going to heaven. Something happened where they, they, one was on this side of the fence and one on this side. It happens, okay? It happens. We're not perfect. The Lord's perfect. But he's beseeching them to be of the same mind in the Lord. He says, I beseech them that they be reconciled, okay? 
Reconciled is where two parties that are estranged are brought back together. We've been reconciled to God through the blood of, the, of his son, right? We were estranged. We were enemies of God. We've been brought back together and reconciled as part of the family of God. Well, these two needed to be reconciled. And a lot of times people just throw in the, the towel and they just think it's, it's just impossible. Can I tell you that every single problem in the church, there's not one. I don't care how big it is, how numerous they are, every single problem in a church can be solved when people yield to the Lord. So if the problem is not solved, somebody's not yielding to the Lord, okay? And we have a responsibility. It's the unity of the Spirit, right? Ephesians, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It is the unity of the Holy Ghost. It's not a man-made unity where we all say, let's just agree to do this. Everyone's born again. We got the same Holy Ghost. We got the same Bible. We got the same Savior, the same blood of Jesus that's washed us. We're all going to the same heaven. We are to get along here. The way we get along, you have a different personality than I do. Than I do. You wanted, uh, you know, like I said, tan chairs, and we got gray chairs instead. Oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? We're going to have a big falling out. Don't think we should have got this building. We should have rented one until we could, you know, all these different things. We want to seek God and be led by the Lord. Wherever there's a division and we're human beings and we can be in disagreement. But I promise you this, Christ is not divided. Christ is not confused. So somebody is wrong. Doesn't mean they're wicked. It doesn't mean they should, they're going to hell. Somebody in that situation, whatever it is, make it up is wrong could be both people are wrong but it's not always so we're so quick to say there's two people arguing just kiss and make up well a lot of times there's a lot more than that shake hands and make up that doesn't necessarily solve it you might need to find out what's going on what the root of the problem is and people you need to yield to the lord because somebody is out of whack let's say somebody's preaching a false doctrine it's not enough to say Here's the one preaching the false doctrine. Here's the one not preaching the false doctrine. Just shake hands and make up. Well, nothing's been solved. If this one's preaching false doctrine, if both will yield to the Lord, God will take care of that. This one needs to be humble about it, okay? I always say this. If you, even if you're the one in the right or I'm in the one right that's right and the other person is wrong, we still need to be right, right. We need to be right and, and be humble about it. We need to be right and be loving about it. We need to be right and be patient about it. We need to be right and be Christ-like about it, okay? doesn't mean compromise. doesn't mean be a wimp. It doesn't mean don't stand up for what's right. But you can be right, right in a godly manner where you're not bringing reproach to the name of Christ, to where you're not an offense, okay? But so if, if both parties... If these two women, for example, in, in Philippians 4.2, would, would both yield, say, well, we're going to go to God together. I really firmly believe I'm right. This one says, well, I really firmly believe I'm right. But greater than me being right, I want, us to I want to know that we're really right in God's eyes. And if those two people would go to the Lord together and say, we're going to fast and pray, we're going to go to the Word of God, and we're going to find out, okay? 
and then I'm agreeing beforehand, before I ever do that, that I'm going to yield and accept and be content with whatever God's perfect will is. See how every problem can be solved? Now, we people don't do that oftentimes. Praise God in this church. So far, hallelujah, we have not had that, that type of problem where people are just stiff-necked and stubborn and insist upon their way. And that is, a, that is the unity of the Spirit. But you understand that there's not a problem. I don't care if church split, everything, uh, denomination split, all kinds of things happen within the body of Christ. It's only because both parties are not saying, I will submit to whatever God says. What if somebody's preached wrong for 20 years and they didn't know it? I mean, it sounds like a strange thing. And then the Holy Ghost convicts them or the Word of God convicts them and says, you've been preaching wrong about this for 20 years. You know what that person needs to do? They need to get on their face before God and say, oh, God, forgive me. God, forgive me. Church people, forgive me for preaching that. I was wrong. See how quickly that can be fixed? But, but when people don't, they get proud and rebellious and say, well, I'm, I'm going to cover it up or I don't, I only want people that agree with me and I'm going to keep pressing on. Well, then you have a split. Then you have a split because they're not yielded to the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord, okay? One said this, that uh, one Bible commentary I was reading said, the scriptural cure for a division. The scriptural cure is natural, simple, and easy for those in Christ and yielded to him. Those in Christ and yielded to him. And that is the key. Alright, let's keep reading. Let's, uh, verse 3. I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Again, we don't know anything else about these people we don't even know who the true yoke fellow is he's speaking directly to i beseech you true yoke fellow help those women that labored with me in the gospel okay it i guess it really doesn't matter it might have been for this church they would have known a lot of people think well maybe that was epaphroditus he's a beseeching him okay yoke fellow is just like a co-laborer in the lord one of the good things that we see about paul and other true men of God that are very godly and holy is that they're, they're not afraid to, to give honor to others within the body of Christ. And so, so many people are afraid, if I, if I build this person up too much in the eyes of the people, people are going to think more highly of them than me. What are we thinking about? It's all for God's glory. Amen? It's all for God's glory. He has no problem calling him a true laborer in the gospel, a yoke fellow. In, in chapter uh, 2, he talked about godly examples in the church to follow and lift it up. He's not, he's not weakened in the, by the fact that others are strengthened and lifted up. It's a godly trait. It's a wonderful way to be. But so we don't know who the women are, okay? We don't know who the yoke fellow is. We don't know Cle Clement, Clement is the only time that he's mentioned here. And he says, and with other my fellow laborers, whose names are in the book of life. I just wanted to touch on this real quickly. Um, we've, you hear about the book of life, right? The book of life, that's actually 
a book. It's actually a phrase that's used in scripture. So it's not just uh, a figure of speech, so to, so to, uh, so to speak. It is a, there's a real book. It's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's mentioned in the New Testament. It is a book of life, and it's a record of all believers who have eternal life, and it's in heaven. The believer has eternal life in heaven. The book is in heaven, and your name, hallelujah, is written there if you've given your life to Christ. It is genuine. I'll give you a few scriptures. You know, if the Bible's using an analogy or something, you can usually tell from the context it's an analogy. But I'll just read this quickly. We don't, we're not going to turn there, but uh, in Revelation 3, 5, so this is the Lord dealing with the different churches in Asia. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Revelation twenty two nineteen. so the very end of the Bible. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. And so we have... Uh, we have some script. There's more. I just, for time's sake, I'm not reading them, but but it's 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 a real thing. The Book of Life, okay, is a book where believers, I believe, Old Testament and New Testament believers' names are written, okay, and they're there before the Lord. The Bible says, "The foundation of God stands sure, the, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are His. He's not confused about it at all. All right." Let's keep reading in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Remember, this is one of our, our themes for the book. Eleven times in this epistle, the word rejoice is used, and five other times the word joy is used. So 16 times either rejoice or joy is used. And he says here, rejoice always. Very simple truth, but it's another thing to actually live it, right? In every situation... Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember, Paul is writing from a Roman prison. He's in prison, and he's writing to them about joy and to rejoice in all situations. It's easy to rejoice when times are good. We know that, right? It's easy to rejoice when times are good. I would say most of the times in life, honestly, most of the times, if you were to add up the days and weeks and months and years, most of the times there are times that we're having some type of trial or heartache or heaviness or temptation or something. It's not that God's uh, cruel to us. It's just in this world, he says, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world and be of good cheer. This is not your home. You're not going to be here always. Okay. And so it keeps our eyes focused on heaven. He's not being mean. He's not being cruel. He's teaching us to trust him. He has given us joy and a heart of thanksgiving and teaching us to be thankful in every situation. Rejoice in the Lord always. Paul would have known more than anybody. We don't have time to read it. How many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was beat, a day and night in the, in the depths of the sea, in troubles and perils among his kinsmen and countrymen and perils among strangers. Uh, all the different things, uh, hungers and, and all the different things he went through. Uh, and he's in prison. Paul and Silas were in a Philippian prison before this. And they were singing praises to God at midnight. 
God was teaching them something, but God was also getting glory back out of their life. Amen. Anybody can be joyful when things are going good. You just got the raise you wanted. You got everything you wanted. Some kid gets the scholarship they wanted. Everything's going great. Everything's just falling in place. And God does that and can do that for us as well. Anybody can rejoice in those circumstances. Anybody. An unbeliever can rejoice in those circumstances. But he's talking about a fruit of the Spirit. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Rejoice in the Lord always. It is a fruit of the Spirit, and it is a result of having true peace with God. Joy is not all around, sickness all around, calamity all around. But my joy is not based upon those things. My joy is based upon my faith in Christ and his faithfulness to me. And that doesn't change. My faith in Christ, his faithfulness to me. Be ye, and, uh, the Bible says, in everything give thanks. The Bible says, rejoice evermore. That means always. And the, it's based on this that, that we can know. Amen? That we can know that all things work together for good. How many times have you heard that scripture? Usually when you're going through a hard time and somebody comes along and says, all things, well, it does. We have to believe that. All things work together. We know, the Bible says, that all things work together for good. For who? For everybody? No. For those that love the Lord, those that are called according to his purpose. Believers, those walking in the faith, those that are washed in the blood of Jesus and walking with Christ. And so that is the source of our joy joy and we're to be joyful all the times okay things around us change but the lord does not change joy drives out this discouragement and joy drives out discord so these two ladies that were whatever the, the problem was joy would drive that out they would yield to the lord and just be glad that they're born again and walked in washed in the blood of jesus i want to read this i thought it was worth reading we only have one more verse we're going to look at tonight. But this uh, commentary says, Christian joy is a mood independent of our immediate circumstances. And therefore, it is, it is not the victim of the passing day. Speaking about our joy. At one time, my conditions arranged themselves like a sunny day in June. A little later... They rearrange themselves like a gloomy day in November. One day, I am at the wedding. The next day, I stand by an open grave. One day, in my ministry, I win ten converts to the Lord. And then, for a long stretch of days, I never win one. Yes, the days are as changeable as the weather. And yet, the Christian joy can be persistent. Wherein lies the secret of this glorious persistence? Here's the secret. Lo, I'm with you always. In the changing days, he changeth not, neither is he weary. He does not show himself only when I wear a, gar a garland and hide himself when I wear a crown of thorns. He is with me all the days, the prosperous days and the days of adversity, days when the funeral bell is tolling and days when the wedding bell is ringing. All the days, the day of the life, the day of death, the day of judgment. He's with us always. That is what our joy is based upon. Amen. It's not based upon circumstances. And that takes learning. 
This, this sermon is not going to make us know that. This sermon will give us that truth to hang on to, but what's going to make us know it is walking with God through it and trusting him. That's when we learn it. That's how Paul learned it. He literally he wasn't saying, if I ever get thrown in prison, I'm going to be happy. He got thrown in prison, and he cried out to God. And he got beat to where his wounds were open on his back, and nobody even bandaged, bandaged them up. He, he, he learned by walking with the Lord, the fellowship of his suffering. Amen? And he rejoiced in that. I'm going to close with this real quickly. At verse 5, he says, Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. This has to do with our testimony for Christ. Because this moderation, which we're going to talk about in just a second, he says, let it be known to all men. Not just those in the church. What is moderation in this sense? It means your mildness, your kindness, your patience, your meekness, your forbearance, your yieldedness. And he's saying, let all see this. Let all see this in your life. It is a Christ-like character. It is a Christ-like trait. And to further explain moderation, as I was studying, it's the opposite of stubbornness, the opposite, opposite of selfishness. It literally means to give up one's own way, to forego one's own rights if it helps the others. Now, you tell me who's going to do that. The believer's going to do that. The one that's truly born again, not the one that says I'm a Christian but really is not, the one that's born of the Spirit of God. That's who can do that. And that's the only one who can literally, privately, inwardly, and then among other people, forego their own rights if it will help this one. That's why Paul says, I have no problem eating meat, but if meat makes my brother stumble, I'm not going to eat it when I'm with them. Instead of demanding his rights, he's, in, he's more concerned with how this person does in the Lord. So when I'm with them, I'll, I won't eat meat. He goes, I won't eat meat the rest of the days of my life if it's going to cause somebody to stumble. You understand the point? You're foregoing your own rights. You have free, full freedom to do it, but there's something higher than your rights, and it's the glory of God. It's the testimony for Christ. I'm going to forego that if it's going to help them. That's what the moderation part, patience, kindness, forbearance with others. And so why do we do this? How do we do it? We let, we're to let people see that. People, have you ever heard people say, you, you, you try to witness to them or talk to them about the Lord. Well, my, my Christianity is a private thing. It's really not a private thing. We're a city set on a hill. That's what the Bible says. We're the salt of the earth, the light of the world. It's not a, well, I, we have uh, neighbors down the street that Dee and I have tried to invite them. They know we're Christians. I've been able to talk to the, the man a few times about the Lord. He kind of keeps his distance, and we have a cordial relationship. And uh, we, I, I straight up asked him, I called him one time, and I said, so-and-so, I want to invite you and your wife over. Dee and I want to have you over, barbecue, hang out with you. We want to share, talk to you about Jesus. Oh, Randy, I don't talk about, never, I've agreed never to talk about religion and politics. I mean, it's a funny little saying, but we're called to talk about Christ, right? Oh, we're not going to talk about religion or politics. Well, I'm called to. I can't force him to, and he knows, he knows where we stand, and if he ever wants to talk, he knows where we are. But the, the point is that it's not private, it is public. My Christianity is private, and it's public. It's always. 
I don't have a downtime. I don't have an on-off switch. I'm at work. Let me click it off. Trying to make a deal with a bunch of unbelievers. Let me tone it way down. Uh, we're Christians all the time. Just live openly before God. Let him take care of the rest. Live for God. He says, let your moderation be known unto all men. In light of this, the Lord is at hand. We talked about it. He's at hand in the sense that he is at hand. He's here with us. He's a very present help in trouble. The, the Lord thy God in the midst of thee is mighty, and he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He's at hand in that way. And I think he's also referring, I believe, to uh, the end of chapter 3, the Lord's at hand. He, he could, before I finish my next sentence, we could be caught up with the Lord. Live like it. Amen? Live like it. And so I want to close. I, I want to uh, read this one more little thing. And you can be turning your Bibles, if you would, to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. In fact, let's go on and read that. James 5, 7 through 9. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. I think it's the same thought. Let your moderation be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Here he's saying, James is saying to be patient, to don't grudge one against another within the body. The Lord, the judge is standing at the door. He's right there. Okay? We do not want to be ashamed at his coming, John says. So, I read this, and I want to read it. Go no place. And D, you can come on up. We should go no place we would not like to be found as believers. D used to tell me, growing up in the Christian home that she did, when she would leave the house, you know, her mom would tell her, don't go any place. You couldn't take Jesus with you. And even getting older, and she's more independent and all that, she still would say that and think that and remember that and encourage others with the same words. But I'm going to say, as believers, we should go no place we would not like to be found. We should say nothing we would not like to be heard. We should do nothing we would not like to be found doing when Jesus comes. Amen. And so the Lord is at hand. We need to live like it. These are not cute little funny kids things this is grown-up things this is christian things live for god be holy when nobody's around the lord's around amen and 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 live for god there's a great joy in that y'all stand with me tonight next week i'm really excited next wednesday lord willing if we're not raptured by then we're going to talk about uh be careful for nothing but in everything through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to god amen that passage that we all know so well. We're going to start on that next Wednesday. But y'all, the altars are open. Let's just come and seek the Lord for a few moments to live in such a way. Ask Him to help us that there be no division. Pray for unity in our body. We have it. But pray there will be no division. Come before the Lord if there's anything in your life that's not quite right and, and needs to be made right before the Lord would rapture us so that we're not ashamed of his coming. Come and ask God to forgive you and strengthen you.